Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, let us try. As you know, it's the motto of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Well, somebody else is trying something. The state of Louisiana, the state government of Louisiana, which uh, has moved heaven and at least part of earth to try to derail a lawsuit against 97 oil companies and uh, petroleum services companies for their role in damaging the wetlands that protect South Louisiana from hurricane storm surge. That very same state of Louisiana government has this week sued the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Why? Because the state wants the Army Corps to pay the full $3 billion cost of restoring wetlands. Sounds familiar. No, destroyed during the maintenance and operation of the Mr. Go outlet navigation channel built by the Army Corps. So if an arm of the federal government builds a channel that destroys wetlands and doesn't take full responsibility for it. The state of Louisiana wants them to pay. If oil companies do the same thing, not so much. The Mr. Go was a little-used 72-mile shortcut from the Gulf of Mexico to the Intracoastal Waterway in the Industrial Canal in New Orleans. You uh, may have seen something about it in my film, The Big Uneasy. It was completed in 1965, authorized to be 36 feet and 500 feet wide, It eroded to more than 2,500 feet wide by the miracle of erosion. The channel allowed salt water to move inland, killing the remnants of Osiris and Tupelo Forest. The state says Congress ordered the Corps to pay 100% of the cost of restoring wetlands eroded by the channel as part of the language ordering Mr. Goh's closure in 2007. But the Corps says uh, Congress intended, really, for Louisiana to pay 35%, $975 million of the cost, citing an older law that says this preempts Congress's later law. This is not the kind of suit that seeks monetary damages, says the chairman of the state's Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. But unless we can get this resolved, nothing will get done. But, in fact, it is over the Corps' insistence that the state spends $975 million that the state insists the Corps spend. So, in a way, it is about money, in a very real way. Hello, welcome to the show. Java 
footy beans. home of the homeless. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the pro- of the pro of the program called the show. Uh I guess this is a a lawsuit heavy edition of the broadcast because in addition to the lawsuit filed in the state of Louisiana against the Army Corps, um I'm bringing your attention. I'm I'm tugging your coat about another lawsuit filed this week or actually one that uh had a judgment issued this week. A federal judge has certified a RICO that's a racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization class-action lawsuit accusing Donald Trump of misrepresenting Trump University to make tens of millions of dollars but delivering neither Donald Trump nor a university. It's like a horse mackerel, you see. It's neither a horse nor a mackerel. Uh, lead plaintiff Art Cohen sued Donald Trump a year ago, claiming Trump devised and executed a scheme to make tens of millions of dollars by misrepresenting that Trump University was an actual university taught by faculty professors, at least partly selected by Trump himself. Trump claimed that Trump University would teach some of his real estate investing secrets. To entice students, Trump spent up to $6 million annually on a national advertising campaign. Cohen says he attended a free seminar after he received a special invitation in the mail, then paid Trump University $1,500 to attend a three-day real estate retreat where he purchased a gold elite program for nearly $35,000 more. Cohen claims Trump did not teach students did not contribute any meaningful way to the curriculum for the live events, and did not handpick the instructors. Trump this month lost another court battle against New York's attorney general when a judge ruled that Trump was personally liable for running the university without a license. Schneiderman, the New York attorney general, accused Trump of fraud, claiming he cheated students out of $40 million. A New York Supreme Court justice found that Trump and Michael Saxton, who served as the university's president, knew the university was being run without a license. A determination of damages in that case is pending. And on Monday of this week, a U.S. district judge in San Diego ruled that Cohen's complaint can continue as a class action. It's the first time you've heard the word class action and the same sentence with Donald Trump in a long time, I would imagine. The plaintiff has introduced evidence that the alleged misrepresentations of a university and of Donald Trump's participation were prominently featured in all marketing materials, and that a playbook, PowerPoint presentations, and scripts encouraged, if not required, Trump University representatives to continue these representations, said the judge. Trump unsuccessfully argued that individualized determinations will need to be met to determine whether the statute of limitations 
bars the claims of members of the class action. He claimed that Cohen could have known as early as July 2009 that Trump University was not an actual university based on the facts that Cohen was not looking for a diploma. The seminars were in a hotel, and Cohen didn't make any inquiries into the accreditation status of the university. Probably what convinced him was the the alma mater. Ladies and gentlemen, not about lawsuits now. The uh, Brits are coming up to their next national election in the, the spring of next year, just as we pass by this uh, midterm in our, in our setup. And strangely enough, one of the big issues in their election this time around is the deficit. Yeah, they're having a, a, a debate, so-called, about the... Uh, level of the deficit, and the national debt in Britain. And uh, the coalition parties, the liberal Democrats and the conservatives, who disagree on a lot of other things, are agreeing on the fact that, well, you can't spend money on uh, social programs like we used to in Britain, uh, they say, because uh, we got this, and I believe the word has already been used in more than one uh, political speech in public, mountain of deficit that has to be reduced. And uh, the Labor Party would be irresponsible because they created this deficit in the first place and you can't let them back in. Uh, Britain is enjoying, if that's the word, anemic growth compared to uh, its friends across the pond, across the little pond in Europe who are experiencing uh, no growth at all. Even Germany has had a backward move. I think the last quarter their economy was... um, not growing. Um, of course, those are countries mired in the 
di- miasma of uh, continued austerity thanks to uh, being in the Eurozone. Meanwhile, in this country, yes, our unemployment is down, our declared unemployment, our announced unemployment, although a lot of people have still left the labor, labor force because they couldn't get work, which makes the, the number go down. Um, but the Washington Post this week ran a, um, an analysis that said that the United States may have turned the corner into a new period, a new post-Great uh, Recession period, where anemic growth is the model for the future. Uh, the, the robust and rampant growth that we enjoyed previously may just have been a thing of the past. Uh, of course, in this country, we're not hearing so much about the deficit anymore since it's going down. Strangely enough, even just given the anemic growth, growth enough has been sufficient, apparently, to drive the deficit down. With all this going on, I thought it might be interesting to revisit a conversation I had on this broadcast just about a couple of years ago right now with Dr. Stephanie Kelton, who's associate professor and chairman of the economics department of the University of Missouri in Kansas City and editor of the blog, New Economic Perspectives. Dr. Kelton, welcome to the program. And I guess in the time since we've talked, um, your somewhat radical view of economics and finances is getting a, a bit of a following. Interestingly, what we have is is really a growing number of people who are are subscribing to what we're doing, paying attention to what we're doing, inviting us to come and speak to their groups, and they come from the finance industry. And so that's been that's been kind of a surprise, but I I guess in some ways, you know, a lot of these folks have training and background in accounting, and so a lot of what we do emphasizes sort of the other side of the ledger. You know, every time someone talks about the government's deficit, you forget that when the government spends more than it collects from you, that somebody else ends up with the difference. And that's the other side of the ledger. So these finance and accounting types seem pretty intrigued by this. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, What's money? Money is a relationship that exists between two parties, and it signifies uh, a party who is the debtor and a party who's the creditor. So money is, is a balance sheet relationship where you've always got both sides of the balance sheet at work. You know, somebody's asset is somebody else's liability. Somebody's IOU is somebody else's um, balance sheet asset. So money isn't this thing. We tend to think of money as a thing, something that you can pick up, something that exists in physical form. And there's only, you know, so much of it. Or if there isn't so much, only so much of it, most people think there should be a limit. And really, in the modern era, money is something that we create with keystrokes. We use computers, and you walk into a bank, and you sit down with a loan officer, and you say, I've got this plan for a, a small business I'd like to start, or I'd like to expand my business, or I want to buy a car or a computer or pay for school or whatever it is. The loan officer doesn't get up from the desk and say, just just a second, let me go and find out if we have any money we're lending out today. <laughs> that doesn't happen, right? The, the loan officer doesn't look in the vault to find out if they can make the loan. They look at you and they look at your work history and your, how much you make, how long you've been there, what kind of debt you have. You know, they look at your balance sheet, not their balance sheet. And if they think they can make money by extending credit to you, then they simply use the computer. They credit your bank account. You get money, and they get this asset called a loan. Or in the last decade, they, they didn't even look at you. <laughs> they didn't even look, right. Yeah. This changed when the United States and uh, ultimately a lot of other countries went off the gold standard and, and money ceased to be a, 
a representation of something payable ultimately by the provision of certain uh, – you could always go and demand uh, certain precious metals for your piece of paper. Right. Right, exactly. So before 1971, the monetary system that we had in the U.S. looked very different from the one that we have today. It was based on a system of fixed exchange rates. It was a global monetary system where you had 44 countries participating. This is uh, something that was an outgrowth after the end of World War II. Uh, It was called the Bretton Woods system because it was designed and put into place, conceived in a place called Bretton Woods, uh, New Hampshire. And so 44 countries got together and decided to fix the value of their currency. So the Mexican peso would be convertible into so many U.S. dollars and the French franc into so many U.S. dollars and the German mark into so many U.S. dollars. And then through the dollar, those currencies would be convertible into gold. So a fixed price, you know, $35 an ounce, so you convert your Deutschmarks into dollars and then your dollars into, into gold. And when you have a system like that in place, of course you have to be careful about how much you allow your money supply to expand because you're promising to convert the dollar on demand into this very finite resource called gold. Well, after 1971, uh, President Nixon took the U.S. off of the Bretton Woods system. We don't have this old, archaic, gold standard convertibility currency system anymore. We have what's sometimes referred to as just a pure fiat money system. It's Our money isn't backed by anything physical. It's not convertible on demand into any other country's currency or in, into any hard asset or anything like that. We quite literally can have an infinite supply of U.S. dollars. Okay, There is no inherent limit to the amount of currency that can be created in the modern era. And this isn't, you know, a a crazy idea that I dreamt up. This is something that Alan Greenspan has been really candid about. I and mean, he said it over and over again. You can find the videos, read the testimony. He says quite plainly that there is no limit to the government's capacity to create the currency. And that's why all of these, you know, these um, debates that you hear about, all this hand-wringing over the size of the national debt and what if we can't pay it back and the rating agencies, and what if the U.S. defaults on its debt, and all this, and Greenspan comes out and he says, this is ridiculous. The debt is denominated in the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar comes from the U.S. government. We always have the ability to pay the debt, always. We hear the United States government, uh, especially during the election campaign, being compared to two different entities, to a household and to Greece. If I could dispel and disabuse people of these two myths, we would have an entirely different national conversation. So um, first, the the household debt analogy. This is a really powerful one. And the finances that most people are familiar with, of course, are their own personal finances. And so I think it, it resonates with them when they hear people make the argument that the federal government faces the same kinds of constraints that you and I face, that we have to tighten our belts when times get tough and the federal government should do the same thing. And the person who really, I think, hammered this home uh, so effective, Ross Perot with his little charts and his feisty little attitude, you know, telling the American people that we're, we're on the verge of bankrupting this nation. And the, if, if he ran his business the way the government runs its operations, why, he'd be broke and all this. So that's where that really, really comes from. And today, you know, it's the Peterson, Pete Peterson and, and his ilk that are pushing this. So ask yourself, what is the difference? Why is it that a household 
uh, has to live within its means? Why is it that a household can only borrow so much before it runs into possibly a situation where a bill comes due and the household can't pay? Why is it that businesses sometimes go bankrupt? Why is it that state governments or Orange County, why is it that some of these folks can actually go bankrupt? The fundamental difference between a household, a business, a state or a local government and the U.S. federal government is that the U.S. federal government is the issuer of the currency. And everybody else that I mentioned is merely the user of the currency. We all have to go out and get the dollar in order to spend the dollar. We either have to earn it, we have to borrow it, um, we make investments, we may have interest income, whatever. But we have to come up with the currency from some source. The U.S. government, in contrast, is the source of the currency, right? The U.S. dollar comes from the U.S. government. Congress has given itself a monopoly over the issuance of the U.S. dollar. If you and I tried to do it, we go to jail. It's called counterfeiting, right? But the U.S. government has the monopoly right to create the currency. And as the issuer of the currency, it can, as Alan Greenspan has said, as Ben Bernanke has said, it can never run out, it can never go broke, and it can never be forced to miss a payment. Greece, you asked about Mm -hmm. Greece. So this is a very interesting example because what you have in, in Europe is, you know, this collection of countries that decided at various points in time, not everybody adopted the euro at the same time, but they all decided to give up their individual sovereign currencies. Eleven of them did this in 1999 and then gradually uh, uh, six more countries joined. So today there are 17. But all of these countries used to have a currency that came from them. The franc, the lira. Right, right, right. And today they have this currency that they can't issue. And in order to spend, they have to go out and get the currency from somebody else. And so you you look at Italy that today has a debt to GDP ratio that is almost exactly where it was 15 years ago. Only 15 years ago, you didn't have a debt crisis. And today you do. What's the difference? How come they could always pay before same debt load? And the difference is because they had promised to pay lira and the lira came from the Italian government. Same for Greece. High debt was is not something entirely new to Greece, but it was always sustainable before because they, the debt was denominated in the drachma and they could always come up with the currency when they needed to make a payment. Uh, just incidentally, who does issue the, the euro? That would be the European Central Bank. They have the monopoly over the issue of the currency. And that's why, you know, time and time again, when we've seen uh, governments get into trouble where they're reaching the point where their debt levels are unsustainable and there's uh, the possibility that they actually might miss payments, the only place the currency can really come from, the only entity that can deal with the solvency crisis is the ECB. So the ECB steps in, provides the funds, and... You know, this thing can go on as long as the ECB is willing to do that. The euro can survive, but um, there's just really no other no other alternative under a system like that because these countries are borrowing in a currency that doesn't come from them. Financial markets realize that they're lending to currency users and not currency issuers, which is exactly why the financial markets have so much power. It's why they're able to bully these countries in a way that they can't bully the U.S., they can't bully Japan, they can't bully the U.K. Look at Japan's debt to GDP. It's twice ours. It's 200 percent debt relative to the size of their economy. Ours is about 100 percent debt to GDP. 
Where are Japan's interest rates? Right where ours are. Zero short term and about 1% long term. Um, why? Why is Japan's debt twice as big as ours and their interest rates are at zero? UK, same thing. US, same thing. And in Europe, interest rates are all over the place, 6%, 6 6.5%, It's because financial markets recognize that they're lending to currency users, that there's a real possibility of default, and in order to compensate them for the risk they're taking in lending to these currency users, they want a premium. And so they're able to extract that higher interest rate by virtue of the fact that, you know, you might default. So those, you got to compensate them. Those are the so-called bond vigilantes that we keep hearing right. about. Um, l- let's get back to us. Does the United States have to either uh, tax or borrow to get money to spend, the federal government? No. It, it doesn't need to finance itself by raising taxes or collecting money through the sale of bonds, which is what we call borrowing. No, that is not the purpose of either of those operations. The, the currency comes from the government. So could the government uh, write checks on its account at the Federal Reserve and just allow the balance in that account, take an overdraft, right? So allow the balance in its account at the Fed to go negative, deeper negative, deeper negative. And the answer is yes, it could. Currently, there are laws in place that prevent the federal, the federal government, that prevent the Treasury from running its account at the Fed into the negative. But who came up with that rule? It was Congress, of course. So... Um, there is no financial constraint. The U.S. government is not revenue constrained in the way that a private business is or in the way that, that we're constrained. Well, if that's true, why are they taxing us? <laughs> <laughs> well, taxes play an important um, and historically a very interesting role. You know, if you look at the history, um, one of the examples that we often use is we talk a little bit about the colonization of uh, Africa by uh, the British. You say, you know, the British sail over and they have a look around and they say, you all have some really terrific reasons. I'm paraphrasing. Yes. yes. You, you all have some really great. You're putting really it mildly, great- too. <laughs> you all have some really great resources here. How, how's about we make a deal and you sell us some of this great stuff and we'd be happy to pay you for it. And here, here are some British pounds. And the Africans, you know, look at the currency and they say, well, it's lovely, uh, but no thanks, cheerio and safe trip home. And the British said, well, no, actually, we really, really want the resources, so here's what we're going to do. We'll start imposing taxes. It could be a head tax. It could be a village tax. But we're going to impose a tax liability on you. The tax liability is payable only in the British currency, and the penalty for not paying the tax is, and then, you know, uh, use your imagination, the, the penalty was pretty stiff. So all of a sudden, these African people who had no interest in working to get the British currency suddenly became very willing to work and provide resources in order to get the currency. And the reason is that the currency had no value to them until the tax was imposed and the liability was imposed on them. In other words, until they were forced into debt. The taxes create the demand for the currency? Historically, you can find this. You can find this in the literature. Historians are very good on this. Anthropologists are very good. Numismatists are very good. And economists are really terrible at this <laughs> um, because they're lazy scholars by and large. And so, yes, the, the, the literature, the work is out there. And, and historically, you can find this. And, and look, if you, 
if you had asked the German people, and, and they did ask the German people, okay, poll after poll, do you want the euro? Would you like to give up the Deutschmark? And the Germans said, absolutely no. We are not signing on to this. We like the Deutschmark. We've been through a lot with our currency here. This thing is stable. We're keeping it. We don't want to take any risks. And the German government said, wait a minute, we're going to go ahead and introduce the euro from this point forward. All payments by government will be made in this new currency and all payments to government will be collected in this new currency. And it's that decision by the government about how it's going to make its payments and what it's going to accept in payment to itself that drives the currency, that, that ends up making that currency the currency that circulates within the national borders. So they didn't have to confiscate lira and francs. They just were not payable as debts to the government. Exactly. Yeah. And they quickly um, s- stopped circulating as, as widely accepted. Okay. The other half of the question, uh, why, do, why does the United States government borrow well, it's a it's a relic of an old monetary system and uh, one that was designed to ensure that you didn't have too much of the currency created uh, when you had a convertible currency, so that you know the currency was convertible into gold. So at this point, the answer with the new monetary system, the one we have today, the answer is that when the government sells bonds, it's a way for the government to hit and maintain positive interest rates. This gets a little bit complicated, but if you think about the government running deficits, that is, spending more money than it collects from us in the form of taxes. What that does is it leaves the private sector, and in particular the private banking system, with a bunch of extra money that economists refer to as reserves. Sorry, let me just slow down for a a show business person's understanding of this. (laughs) This is the surplus in the private sector you were referring at the beginning to as the the offset on the other side of the ledger sheet from the government's deficit. deficit. That's right. So if if the government buys a $100 billion aircraft carrier, uh, it's harder to do just a single purchase, but I'll, I'll try to do this. $100 billion aircraft carrier and it collects you know, only $90 billion in taxes, well, the person who put the $100 billion into their checking account, that bank has $100 billion in what we call reserves. And now let's say the customer at that bank pays the $90 billion tax liability, 90 comes out, but there's still an extra $10 billion in the banking system and in the private uh, sector. And if you're not doing anything to get rid of those extra reserves, Bank reserves uh, circulate between banks. And so what happens is uh, banks are required in the U.S. to hold reserves. That is, they keep checking accounts at one of the 12 Federal Reserve banks. And they hold reserves against a fraction of what their customers keep on deposit with them. This is so-called fractional reserve banking? Fractional reserve banking. And sometimes banks have more reserves than they want to hold. And sometimes banks don't have as many as they're legally required to hold. And so you have this market out there called the federal funds market. And the banks with too many can get together with the banks with too few. And they make a, a loan. And the price that you pay for those reserves is the federal funds rate. And a lot of people will have heard that, you know, when they talk about the Federal Reserve changing interest rates or something. You hear about the Fed funds rate. Well, if the government is putting more in than it's taking out by spending more than it's collecting in taxes, then the banks are accumulating reserves. And if this is happening on a wide scale, right, all the banks are accumulating more reserves, then everybody wants to be a lender and nobody wants to be a borrower. And so the price goes to zero. 
And so your overnight interest rate, the federal funds rate, quickly falls to zero. Today, it's a policy decision to keep it at zero, but that's not how things normally work. Normally, the government wants the interest rate above zero. And so what they've done historically for decades now is they sell bonds. They say, well, the interest rate is zero because you all have all of these reserves and you're trying to get rid of them because they don't pay you any interest. Let's sell you some bonds. And then you hold U.S. government bonds that pay you interest and I'll take those reserves from you. And so it allows the bond sale is a way for the government to maintain positive interest rates. This is the short answer to a kind of complicated question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it leads to the question of uh, which we, we hear constantly talked about in the political context of who's buying U.S. debt, uh, U.S. federal government debt, and uh, are, we're depending on the Chinese and we're putting our grandchildren in hock. Uh, let's examine both halves of that one. Are, are, are the Chinese the main holders of U.S. Treasury debt at this point in time? No, not by a long shot. No, they hold about a trillion dollars out of the total roughly 16 trillion. So, uh, no, uh, it's not a trivial amount, but it's also well. I not got that a, on me. Yeah, it's not a trivial amount, but it's also not. Uh, it's it's also not something we should be wringing our hands over the way we do uh, today. Look, China has uh, U.S. dollars because China has a strategy for domestic growth that relies heavily on China's desire to produce things and ship them to other people to enjoy. So this is – as long as this is part of their strategy and they want to grow their industries by making things and shipping them to foreigners, they're going to end up with the currency of foreign countries. And in the case of the U.S., when the, when the Chinese send us more goods and services than we send them, they end up with U.S. dollars, which is fine. So we get the stuff and they get the credit to their bank account. Now, what they do is they say – well, we have all these U.S. dollars in our bank account, but they don't pay us any interest. Mm -hmm. So why don't we flip these out of our checking account into our savings account, which is basically what the U.S. Treasury is to them. It's like having a savings account instead of a checking account. So they get interest so paid on the bonds. They get interest, interest. And because the U.S. government is only promising to pay U.S. dollars and because it's the issuer of the U.S. dollar and it can never run out, it can always – pay the interest. It can always pay back the principal. And when they do, we put the money back into China's checking account. And then what does China do? Do they say, oh, good, we have lots of dollars. Now we can go buy more goods and services from the U.S.? No. They say, put it back in our savings account, right? We want the treasuries. So they just keep flipping it back and forth from checking into saving. All the while, they're toiling away the day in, in conditions none of us would want to be working in, producing things, cheap things, sending them to us to enjoy. And, and what do they get in return? They get more credits to their checking account that they flip into their savings account. And, and we act like they're winning and we're losing. And we send convoys of, you know, high-level government officials over there to tell them to stop allowing us to abuse them this way. The, the other half of that, what's happening to our grandchildren? Who's doing what to our grandchildren? Well, we're not doing them any favors at the moment, that's for sure. Um, cut, cutting education, laying off teachers, um, letting our infrastructure fall into disrepair to the tune of, you know, $2.2 trillion and a, a D rating uh, overall. I mean, the, the, we're not leaving them a whole lot uh, to be proud of in energy and environment and any number of things. And, 
and for the mo- and, and a you know retirement system, social security that cuts the that they the programs that may not be there for them uh, when they need them and so forth. So we we make all of these choices, and the excuse is always, well, we'd love to do better, but we can't afford it because we don't understand our own monetary system. We think the dollar comes from China. <laughs> Made right by right on the same assembly line as iPads. Um, I, I left one question hanging from the previous uh, question: Who does own uh, most U.S. Treasury debt then, if not China? Oh well, it's in it's in it's on the books of financial institutions, banks, pensions, you know, corporations. I mean, these are good, safe, mainly Americans, free, mainly Americans. Sure, sure. So if if I were listening casually to you, uh, I'm trying to pay more attention, but if I were a casual listener, I would say, well, is this just a uh, an ideological water carrier for the Democrats? Well, no, because they frustrate me more than anybody does. Um, <laughs> well, welcome to the club. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the, 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 who wants to strike the grand bargain? Who wants mm-hmm. – who said go big? Who said four trillion? You know, it, this is – most of this kind of talk is actually coming from the Democrats. Um, it, it's not a free lunch. Look, there are lots of things that we don't do today to recover the economy to where we should recover it. And and every single day, we're leaving around $10 billion on the table in lost output, lost income because of all of the unemployment. You know all of the social problems that go alongside that housing market that we haven't addressed uh, the problems there and so on and so forth. So um, there are real costs and there are lots of things that we forego every day because we don't do what we should be doing. Um, but this is not – what I've been saying shouldn't be interpreted to mean because you can create the currency uh, in an infinite way that you should go out and spend to infinity. That's not it at all. What I'm saying is that when you have about 23 million Americans who want to work and they want full-time work and they're unable to find it, when you have things that need to be done, useful things that need to be done, like I mentioned the $2.2 trillion in infrastructure uh, investment that needs to be made, and you have folks who want to work and you have useful things that need to be done and you have the financial wherewithal. To, to make that happen. It's not financially responsible. We hear a lot about fiscal responsibility. Mm-hmm. What could be more fiscally irresponsible than being the monopoly issuer of the currency and keeping it so short that people can't get the currency when they want to work in exchange for the dollar so that they can buy things? And so you put people to work, you pay people to work, people go out and spend, businesses have customers, businesses hire. This is not really rocket science. I'm... I'm sort of dumbfounded every day I go through life at, at the complexity that apparently people people can't figure out the the simplicity of this, you know? You, you run your economy at full employment. If there's unemployment, it's an indication that the deficit is too small. If you get inflation, it can be an indication that you're spending too much. That is, if the, if the inflation is the result of, as they say, too much uh, money chasing too few goods. But if your economy is starting to heat up and you begin to see inflationary pressures that are coming because there's too much demand and you don't have the capacity, the supply capacity, you can't produce enough goods and services, then you have to slow that demand down. And you do that either by cutting spending or by raising taxes. Okay. You did mention the I word, which I'm, I'm sure some people uh, have been screaming at their radios for some time now. So let's, let's tackle it head on. If the government doesn't need to tax 
and it doesn't need to borrow in order to spend, uh, and it spends willy-nilly. People will say hyperinflation, wheelbarrows full of uh, paper money just to buy a loaf of bread. The the familiar images in our heads of the Weimar, which certainly still scares the Germans, if nobody else. Inflation is a constraint. You've acknowledged that. How great a constraint is it? Well, it would be a significant constraint if we didn't have the excess capacity and the millions and millions of unemployed workers. So you expect price pressures when your markets get tight, when you're running your factories very near their capacity, when the labor market gets so tight that you know, you have basically a job opening for every job seeker. Then you know you're really close to full employment. Um, you know, you don't get hyperinflation by running your economy at full employment. Let's not forget that under the Clinton years, the so-called Clinton boom, we had full employment in this country. We had as close as what I'm comfortable referring to as full employment, where we actually had one job vacancy for every job seeker. And that was the first time in 35 years that we'd achieved those kinds of numbers. Our inflation rate was so low, nobody even talked about inflation. Inflation was not even on the radar screen. We had high rates of growth of GDP. Our unemployment rate officially was 3.7%. We had high growth, low unemployment, and modest inflation. So we did this before, and we did it in the not-so-distant past. All I'm saying is that the way we're running the economy right now, this is not fiscally responsible. This is, this is dysfunctional finance. Um, we, we're getting everything wrong. We've got all kinds of room to run here, and we can safely crank up aggregate demand. We can safely cut taxes on those that we think are, will be most likely to go out and spend, and those that spending leads to the sales that then lead to job creation. And we can safely increase government spending on programs like infrastructure, education, and the kinds of things that we help, uh, that we believe um, generate real economic growth and prosperity and leave our children and grandchildren better off than they would be otherwise. Your colleague Warren Mosler, I believe, uh, says that the decision to whether to cut taxes or to increase spending or the the balance between those remains a political decision, that, that this understanding of economics does not dictate one or the other or the particular formula for the combination. Is that correct? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I sometimes use the phrase cash registers don't discriminate. You know, when you when you go to the grocery store, somebody might say to you paper or plastic, but nobody will ever say to you private or public. And so whether the additional spending comes because we had a payroll tax holiday and millions of Americans have more take-home pay and more money to either pay down debt or to go out and buy some something new – uh, or whether it comes from, you know, direct government spending, cash registers don't discriminate. So, yes, it is very much a political decision. I want to double back to the question of the bond vigilantes for a moment. Confidence in the market, is is that code for the bond vigilantes looking for the next uh, fish in the water that's that may be uh, emitting blood? If the central bank establishes a, a low interest rate and then pledges to keep rates low, as the Fed has done here, that market participants are going to anticipate low interest rates across uh, some period of time out in the term structure. And so you're going to have low interest rates. I mean, when you set the interest rate, you're going to have whatever interest rate you decide upon. 
I, I'm getting the idea that what one of the things you you folks are doing, aside from uh, trying to redirect our attention towards the the actual way that the monetary system works in the post 1971 era, is if this is not the purpose, this seems to be the effect, is to take the moralizing out of it. Uh, we've been taught by what we've been hearing in the na- so-called national debate that there's something immoral about having a high debt. There's something immoral about having these deficits. There's something that uh, is against the way people should, again, from the household analogy, obviously, but that there, there, there's a morality factor here that uh, uh, I think moves Americans who don't even wouldn't know the Federal Reserve if if, uh, they walked into the front door of it. Yeah, I, I, for whatever reason, I just started thinking about Murdoch. And, you know, it's it's obviously not God's will that the federal government be in deficit. There is a moralizing where it's it's a de facto sign that you're behaving imprudently, right? If -hmm. if there's a negative number on the ledger, we've done something wrong. We've gone wrong uh, somewhere. And that what we're trying so hard to do is to get people to recognize that their deficit is our surplus, that their red ink is our black ink. And it's a, it's a very hard thing to flip that switch and get people to, to spin the way that they view, you know, the, the government's deficit and the debt and so forth. And it's, it's a very powerful narrative, as you said, playing into the in into morals and fear and the fear of China and the fear of the rating agent there's there's both of those things are extremely difficult to get people to overcome both the the moral aspect and the fear what would happen if uh, if Ron Paul got his way and the United States went back on the gold standard well we had eight depressions on the gold standard and zero off of the gold standard um, it it is a it is a system that constrains you in a way. You have a, a flexible system today that provides you with policy space that you simply do not have when you're on a fixed exchange rate system, a gold standard system. When you're adopting a currency that you don't control, like the euro, those types of monetary systems, the gold standard and the rest. They place constraints on you that limit your fiscal space. And the reason it's important is because when you have an economic downturn, and you inevitably will, every single market economy on the planet has cycles. We have booms and we have busts, everyone independent of the type of monetary system you have. So when that bust inevitably comes, you just won't be able to respond effectively, which is exactly why countries went off the gold standard every time they went to war and every time there was a serious economic downturn. They all go off gold every time. In other words, it works until it doesn't work. You are the editor, I believe, of New Economic Perspectives, a, a, a web blog, yes? Yes. Uh, and one of the people who's written for that, uh, or who writes for it fairly frequently, has been a guest on this program, Bill Black. So if uh, any listeners who were intrigued by Bill Black or what's been talked about here today want more, neweconomicperspectives.com, is that correct? That's that do, uh, dot org dot org new dot economics org. perspectives new economic perspectives dot org would be the place to go. Uh, Dr. Ste- Stephanie Kelton, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Soccer's governing body, FIFA, FIFA, apologized after organizers of the 2018 World Cup in Russia displayed a map that showed Crimea as part of the host country. 
FIFA said a Russian agency hired to help with the introduction of the official emblem for the 2018 World Cup was to blame for the map. Sepp Blatter, head of FIFA, rejected calls from U.S. and EU politicians for the tournament to be removed from Russia as punishment for its role in the Ukrainian conflict. When some politicians say the World Cup in Russia should be boycotted, I say on the contrary, we should invite everybody. One cannot boycott football in general, and it can't be boycotted in Russia, said Sepp Blatter. You should talk to the uh, Russian Olympic officials from 1980 to see if that can ha- if that's true. Dateline wherever. Walmart apologized for a Pashtun Papa Halloween costume, costume that appeared for sale on its website. The item's description on Walmart.com read, Represent the Middle East in this men's Pashtun Papa com- costume this Halloween. Whether you're making a serious political statement or staging a political parody, this authentic-looking outfit is sure to fit the bill. Shock your friends with this Islamic costume. Walmart suspended the vendor responsible for the costume. We have removed it from our site and are deeply sorry for any offense it may have caused. The costume violated Walmart's marketplace policy. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry phoned Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and apologized to him in the name of the Obama administration for comments made by an anonymous U.S. official who, in talking to Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic magazine, called Netanyahu, quote, a chicken poop, unquote. That's not an exact quote. On Thursday, Kerry had publicly distanced himself from the comments, stressing that neither he nor President Obama were behind the remarks, which he said were disgraceful, unacceptable, and damaging. Goldberg added officials had previously called Netanyahu recalcitrant, myopic, reactionary, obtuse, blustering, pompous, and assburgery, which led for U.S. officials also to apologize to a foundation dedicated to victims of autism spectrum. If you were one of the unlucky early adopters, or as I call them, beta testers, who got your iPhone bricked when you installed iOS 8.0.1, Apple Vice President of iPhone Marketing Greg Joswiak is very sorry about it. Speaking at a conference this week, Joswiak officially apologized for the problems that iOS 8.0.1 caused and explained it wasn't the software itself, it was the way it was distributed that essentially rendered iPhone users unable to make phone calls with their devices. It's a phone, after all. It's the distribution. It's the distribution. Don't blame the software, it's the distribution. I blame the guys with the trucks. And from the OSS Society, a society of people who were part of the Office of Special Services, the forerunner to the CIA, I would like to personally apologize for the OSS trailer that was shown at the dinner. The trailer was sent late Friday because I was managing many last-minute details of the event. I did not have time to review it before it was shown. General Donovan is my hero, and I would never intentionally tarnish his memory. Sincerely yours, Charles Pink, president of the OSS Society. I didn't see the trailer. I don't know how they tarnished the memory of General Wild Bill Donovan, the founder of the OSS. But for the tarnishment, they are sorry. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations. If you'd like to see episode two of Nixon's The One featuring the the incredibly tangled relationship between Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, just go to harryshearer.com, right on the front page, click Watch Nixon's The One Now, and that's exactly what you'll do. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desks for help with today's program, as thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson and WWNO New Orleans with help for the broadcast as well. The email address for this program and the playlist of the music heard here on and Cars I Talk t-shirts, all available at harryshear.com. And I'm yakking at you on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. little advance notice, Judith Owen and I will be doing our annual Christmas shows, now called Christmas Without Tears, benefiting New Orleans Musicians Clinic and local mental health charities in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and Los Angeles this year. So uh, check it out for information. It's always a good time for a good cause. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from Santa Monica.